Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Liz Winstead is a Minnesotan through and through, even though she has spent the better part of the past three decades in New York City. Winstead first moved to New York to pursue her stand-up comedy career and became a segment producer for The Jon Stewart Show in 1995. While that talk show ultimately didn't last long, Winstead found herself getting offered her dream gig by Comedy Central a year later. That gig? Co-creating The Daily Show. She later pivoted to radio, serving as the original program director for Air America Radio, where the 2004 lineup included Mark Marin in the morning, Janine Garofalo at night, and Al Franken at midday. Winstead, meanwhile, co-hosted a show from 9 to noon weekdays with Public Enemies Chuck D and a previously unknown radio host from Massachusetts named Rachel Maddow. Since then, Winstead has mounted a live parody of Morning TV, written a book of essays called Liz Free or Die, and came out of that process realizing she could be even more activist in her comedy. Her book tour begat a new organization, first called Lady Parts Justice League and now known as Abortion Access Front, or Abortion AF for short. Winstead is currently touring towns and cities across America with her Feminist Buzzkills of Comedy Tour. I caught up with her during a break between tour stops, so let's get to it! So Liz Winstead. Yes. Last things first. Uh, true or false? Do you make an appearance on screen in the seminal Prince film Purple Rain? I am not on screen, but I did host all of the auditions. What? For, for the extras. Yeah. So funny you should ask that question. So I worked at First Avenue for years. Right. And you're, a, you're a Minneapolis... I'm a Minneapolitan, yes. born and raised. And so when Purple Rain was being developed, and like my, my whole coming of age of comedy, um, the first time I ever got paid doing comedy was on the stage at First Avenue. And uh-huh. I was an MC for, um, if you're old enough to remember, like in the 80s, um, air guitar mm-hmm. contests at clubs was super popular. I think they do them still, but ironically. Yes. So I emceed them and okay. made fun of everybody. And then they would have dance contests there too. And so when Prince was doing Purple Rain, he had all of the dance extras, mm-hmm. people do auditions, and I hosted the auditions. And here's an even you, – you asked a question that you did not know you, I was gonna, about to go down a rabbit hole for you. So Prince did 12 secret shows at First Avenue where mm-hmm. he just showed up and did a show. And sometimes he did it like solo acoustic – Sometimes he'd bring the band. Sometimes it was some combination thereof. I was at all 12. Um, They would like, you would find out that they were announced and they would shut the doors at 11 of the club. And then the shows would start probably usually around midnight. And Mm -hmm. then he would play till who knows when. But they were awesome. And um, Were those the ones that were filmed for the movie or no? So here's the thing. No. Um, But the one that was filmed for the movie um, was... It was a benefit for a ballet company called the Lois Houlton Dance Company. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was he, it was 1999. He was touring the record 1999. And he did this benefit. And it's when he premiered um, probably um, six or eight of the songs from Purple Rain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was at that show. It was the night before my birthday. I'll never forget it. I was on the guest list. It was very exciting. But uh, 
it, there's a, a documentary film that's coming out about it. One guy shot it. I've seen some of the footage of the documentary, mm-hmm. but the film is going to be pretty cool. The guy that did, um, he's a usually a narrative drama um, movie maker. He did um, that Stephen Hawking movie that won all the Oscars okay. with Eddie Redmayne. Mm-hmm. Um, but he got all of the band. He got like weirdly like some of REM happened to be in town because they were recording and they were there. Like it's a really interesting. Um, so we talked to all these different people about mm-hmm. their experiences of being at the show. And I can't wait for the documentary to come out because it's the first time any of these songs had ever been played from Purple Rain. And it's also pre-cell phone, right? Right. So um, the, in the footage that I've seen, um, watching Purple Rain in front of a group of people staring slack jawed because they've never heard the song before right. is super weird. Like it's really cool because it's not like, you know, the, the waving of the no, hands. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. They're just listening and they're just you know, taking it in. They're taking it in and it's got like an eight minute open that song. Yeah. Right. And so people Very are just like, slow. where is this going to go? Where is this going to go? Um, and my, um, my whole thing was um, I'm a big Joni Mitchell fan also. And um, he did the song A Case of You that night. Mm-hmm. And, like, when you're a punk rock kid in the 80s, you're not admitting to any, like, folk shit. You're, like, keeping your mouth shut about it. You're keeping your, like, love of Joni Mitchell to yourself because ain't nobody got time for you talking about Joni Mitchell when you live in the town that Husker Du lives in. Mm-hmm. Like, just shut the fuck up. So Prince does solo uh, acoustic A Case of You. And I was like, fuck all of you. I'm going to now proudly... Because Prince just did talk about how much I love Joni Mitchell and y'all can die in a fire. And um, so I talked a lot about that just uh, in the documentary. But I'm excited for the documentary to come out. I don't know when it's coming out, but I'm, I'm, I'm excited, excited for it. I'm excited for it now, too. Yeah. So, hi. So, one more question about about all of that, though. Yeah. So, you said you held the uh, dance auditions for the extras. So, did you uh, also learn how to do the bird I, for Morris Day in the time? I can or- do the bird. I'm doing oh, it right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, we, oh, we, yeah, I can do the bird. Um, and uh, my roommate was in the video, um, the time video where they're in the classroom. Um, it's it's for um, their cassette. I did buy their. Ah, oh, God, what is the song? It's um, it's not Jungle Love. Mm-mm, that's a we, oh, we, oh. Um, it is. I can't remember what song it is, but she's in a schoolgirl outfit. We were freshmen in college, oh, yeah. and uh, yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I knew when I was I was I was going through the internet before coming over to your place, and I saw one of your first headshots, if not your first headshot, uh, and you've got this big leather jacket, and I was just like, <laughs> oh, and I knew, but I knew you were from Minneapolis, and I was like, oh yeah, I can definitely picture young Liz Winstead, yeah. rocking out in the in the nightclubs. The vibe. In fact, there's a, they just did a retrospective of a photographer who took photographs of all of, uh, of musicians and comedians that had come out of, mm-hmm. out of that time. And there was a picture of me where I literally look like I'm from a British invasion band. I'm wearing this Paisley man shirt and these like skinny jeans. I look like a young Mick Jagger with this weird short hair. And I was like, I have no idea when that picture was taken. I don't recognize see, that's it. what happens. You, you start out there and you end up with abortion action for Access Force. Access Front. Access Front. Well, abortion we have two. We have front. two. Abortion Access Front and Abortion Access Force. Okay. One does all political work. One does reach out. Yeah. So you start there and you end up here. And then Ricky Gervais starts out with like his London boy band. And then he v- 
veers off into completely different territory. I mean, see, we we grow, we evolve, we, we grow, we evolve, we devolve. But Who my love of Prince continues as you as you are in my home right now talking to me. Um, you can you can just see right, all of have, my books. You have- and then, All of these Prince books and, and then um, books and... look at that photograph right there. You can take a picture of it. For, <gasps> it's from his very first photo shoot. Um, and this book is all the pictures from the photo shoot. Mm-hmm. But there's um, it's one of 25 and it's pr- he's giving the finger and it's really incredible. He's walking, giving the finger. I figured, you know, if we're going to be talking about feminist buzz kills of comedy. <laughs> First, you yeah. have to have some buzz. First, you have to have some buzz. <laughs> so I wanted to start with some buzz. Okay. Some buzz, buzz, buzz. All right. Before we kill the buzz. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, before we got on the mics, uh, we were reminiscing about when I moved to New York City in 2007, I met you almost immediately through Sean Crespo. Mm-hmm. And that was when you were doing Shoot the Messenger, which was a live stage Parody of a of a morning television program, yeah, which you then developed into a pilot called we, Wake Up World. Yeah, we did it into a pilot and tried to sell it, and uh, people were like, "That'll never fly." And then now there's a show like that Jennifer Aniston's in <laughs> on TV, apparently with that Ruth. Ruth but that satire's more subtle, isn't it? Yeah, it's more subtle. We were way it's, more. It's over Apple the top. TV subtle. It's Apple TV. And also TV. Apple TV didn't exist in 2009, 2010. Right. In this way. I know. And it Apple was, TV Plus. It was this crazy uh, group of really fun actors and writers and comics who just really want to get together and, and do some fun stage stuff. And um, I hosted it with the fantastic Baron Vaughn, who I adore, who has now gone on to be fancy. Yes. And, uh, you know, Sean Crespo, who was working on Sam B, and Joe Miller, who helped create Sam B, was one of the writers. And... Carol Hartzell, and you know, it was a really cool crew of folks and rotating people that came in that satirized morning shows in in a way that was really great. And then, like when we stopped doing it, I like if my credit card that the website was on like expired or something, and then I tried to get the website backed, and all of our contents on it, and some it's now some Asian thing. I uh-huh. don't know. I don't know how you get that back, but I should figure it out. But how long after that did you? briefly moved back to Minneapolis. So what I did was I uh, got a book deal. And like so many people you'll talk to, I had total fraud syndrome and Mm -hmm. I couldn't get the book written. They gave me 18 months. You know what it's like. Uh, 18 months. And at 12 months, I hadn't started the book. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, this is a series of autobiographical essays, um, sort of coming of age and then trying to find my voice and then that voice became comedy and then the comedy sort of dovetailed with activism. So I was like, I just got to go home back to Minnesota focus. Like there was no distractions in Minnesota. Like I was really, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> Cause your family is still there. Cause my family's still there. So many, if, if you know anyone from Minneapolis, <laughs> you will learn very quickly that Unless you are, like, in showbiz, there's mm-hmm. no reason to move. It is the greatest city. Like, I go back all the time. I love it. So I went back um, and finished the book and actually started the – well, I should say started the book <laughs> and finished the book. Um, but during that time was when we – remember Wendy Davis was, like, on the floor of the Texas house, you right. know, filibustering, and all these laws started happening, and clinics started closing down. And I didn't know what I was going to do after I wrote the book. Like, I had to go back out and pitch shows. And I was like, what do I want to do? And 
and I also had to get back to New York. So I had my van and I had my two dogs and I had a drive back home. So Mindy Tucker, the, the amazing photographer, um, and Matt Gorman, who worked with us, he was the director on Wake Up World, flew to Minneapolis and drove with me. And we drove back and did fundraisers for Planned Parenthood all along the way. And Mindy photographed the whole thing. And we started meeting the clinics and 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 touring the clinics and the and, and independent providers as well because there's Planned Parenthood and then there's also like the local community clinics as well. Mm-hmm. And they kept saying, "It is we can't believe you're here because no one ever comes to visit us. We feel abandoned. We don't feel supported. And the fact that you would come and a do a fundraiser comedy show for us is really cool. But then also like that you would spend time." morale boosting at our clinic is 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 no one's done it before and i was like wait there's a whole movement of people that lobby politicians and people that raise money for folks that need abortion who can't afford it but in the course of us all panicking because clinics are closing nobody was actually checking in with the providers and i was like wait i think i think i could talk to some comics and Mm -hmm. And see if we can start, like, doing that. So I got back to New York and I brought all my stand-up friends together and some writers and producers. And I was like, shit's bad out there. And we've all used these clinics for birth control and other stuff, abortion, whatever. Um, And it's allowed us to have our careers. Do y'all want to, like, go on the road and, and bring folks into a room and do some funny comedy shows? Just do your act. And then I'll I'll do the heavy lifting of having conversations with the people who provide care in the town, and our audiences can sign up and help them. And so, hence, uh, abortion access front. Hence, the feminist buzzkills of comedy are born because you know, feminists aren't funny. But your initial title for it was more of a superhero. Yeah, thing. Lady Parts Justice League, League. Is, is what we did, and then. It was, you know, it was cute and catchy, but then we had a lot of folks who are don't are trans or are, you know, gender nonconforming or queer, and they were just like, you know what, I don't identify as a lady, but I have a uterus, and so I kind of feel put off by the name, and I was like, that's fair. I don't want to be alienating, especially if to anybody who needs the care. I want everybody to feel like they can participate and join up. So we transitioned the name to, say, call it um, Abortion Access Front, and also... You know, abortion is the thing that's under attack. And for a lot of years, folks just didn't talk about abortion. We kind of talked around it. You know, we're pro-choice. It's like, that's true. But a lot of folks who are in sort of shitty situations don't really have a choice financially or otherwise. So um, why don't we say abortion? If we believe in it, we shouldn't be ashamed of it. And let's put the name front and center and let's have everybody feel like they're included. So when you were writing your book, Liz Free or Die... Um, as you mentioned, you talked about like finding your voice communically and then finding your voice as an activist. When was the first time you realized those two things could or should merge for you? I think for me, it was, you know, I'm one of the olds. I'm a super okay boomer, so feel free. I'm fine. Um, for <laughs> but me, you're on the tail end of the boom. I am. I'm on the tail end you're, of the boom. You're almost Gen X. I am. I have wacky glasses, so the kids <laughs> like me. You know, you get your big black glasses on. It's like, hey, she might be interesting or just crazy and I can mm. take her money. Um, so I think it was really when when the first Gulf War happened way back in the 90s. 91. 91. Yeah. 
And it was, I mean, CNN was running ads while we were negotiating whether or not we were going to go to war. They were running ads that was countdown to the war. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. There's a countdown to the war graphic and theme song. And yet we're supposed to be negotiating to see whether or not we're going to go to war. It all just became and started to seem really bullshitty to me. And then I'll never forget. I was on a blind date with this guy who shows up for the blind date. This is before Tinder, by the way. Um, in a fucking Yankees hat mm-hmm. and a Yankees satin jacket, like full on Yankees. And I'm like, I just don't trust anybody who's like double sports teaming in their clothes. Mm-hmm. I just feel like a guy that does that will never go down on you. It's just a theory, but I'm pretty sure it's real. Um, and and I and I wanted to go see La Dolce Vita in the theater because mm-hmm. I'd never seen it on the big screen. And he literally goes, "Okay, but like, isn't that in black and white?" And I was like, "Why am I on this date?" <laughs> um, but anyway, we go to the movie. He sleeps through the whole thing, mm-hmm. and because I'm from Minnesota, um, I take it upon myself to feel guilty that I brought him to a movie that he fell asleep. So I invite him for a drink after to prolong this evening. And he's like, I know a sports bar. Of course you do. So uh, we go to this bar and Mm -hmm. it was the night of the war and the war was on the TV. And it had the theme song and the whistles. Because war is sport. And it felt like extra. And like, you know, they had the green light and the people were on the roof. Right. And, um, And I remember thinking to myself, like not with any insight or anything, like, are they reporting on a war or trying to sell me a war? Like it just felt really uncomfortable. And five minutes after I thought that to myself, the guy goes, this is really cool. And I was like, oh my God, I think they just sold him the war. And it just, that night really made me start thinking about like, I think I'm being lied to. And I think that I don't like it. And I had done stuff in my act previously about just sort of how you know women's magazines are kind of a sham and mm-hmm. kind of talked about social issues a little bit about sexism especially um and gender uh but this felt bigger and then i just started getting more and more involved politically and wanted to talk about it more and i i um my act i lost a lot of followers at first people were just like i don't want to fucking hear this and then i had to build up an audience of people who cared and I did a one woman. Sh- I did a one woman show in Minneapolis, and it sold out. Like it was crazy, and I was like, "Oh, people do want to hear this." And so, um, it really became. And once people were laughing, and I was pointing out hypocrisy at everybody, you know, I'm sure I'm a big lefty, but it didn't stop me from making fun of Democrats and people who fucked up and used their power for evil or stupidity. Um, and I think that's why people like me. And then. It just, um, I got, I moved into a building with the producer of Jon Stewart's syndicated talk show on the same day, just by accident. And she's like, do we need a segment producer? Do you want to do it? And I was developing my second version of the one woman show in Boston. And I was like, yeah. So I, I worked on Jon Stewart's show and then I was working on this Boston show. And then, um, when that show got canceled, um, I had, I went and did my Boston one woman show. And then my bosses at John Stewart's show, um, became the heads of comedy central. And they were like, we, we want to do a show. 
that's like on every day that's mm-hmm. like a funny news show and do you and Madeline want to help do it and I was like I've never done anything like that before and they're like well you know about politics and stuff and I was like yeah I really hate the media too do you think we could like make fun of the media too and they were like okay and then I was like okay I was like no seriously like the media should be a character like can we like do a satire and they're like okay and I just kept saying shit that was like all right I'm just gonna keep saying things and then um they were like fine and and so and then they said something that's unheard of they go and you know something like this is gonna take a while to develop so maybe we should just develop it for a year on the air without a pilot (laughs) and madeline and i were just like neither of us are men (laughs) and they're giving us this show to do and to like let it like be bad and grow and stuff on the air right not just 13 weeks and we'll see yeah they're giving you a whole year a whole year four (laughs) days a week and i think though you couldn't you can't do it any other way. You know, if it's a show that's going to be a strip show, you have to figure out how you do it every day, how to prioritize, how to do that, um, who you get to do it. And, you know, The Daily Show was so... Oh, and it was The Daily Show, by the way. I didn't say that. So <laughs> that show is The Daily Show. So, and I think that... Um, and The Daily Show is such a different animal than a regular late night show because your your writing team, you have to be just animals about the news in the world. And you can't just want to write monologue jokes about current events. You have to have a passion about a bleeding hatred of like how bullshit cable news is and how bullshit like a lot of things are. And back then actually it was local news that was total garbage because there was only CNN and then something called America's talking, which was the precursor to Fox. Fox. And so we launched in, in, July with Craig Kilburn was the host. Um, and then in the beginning of July, and then at the end of July came MSNBC and then October came Fox. And then it was just like a deluge of people having way too much airtime to fill, to give information. And so, you know, we just sort of mocked what they did and followed the trends of what they did. And a lot of our initial hires were folks who came from, news who were disgruntled they're the funniest people truly they're just like pissed you know when you get they also knew what to mock about it they knew what to mock they knew the tone they knew how to help write scripts and they also just like um they also knew that like were mad that they spent so much money in getting a communications or a journalism degree and then they were sent out to change you know chase like jeffrey dahmer's crazy trial or whatever it's like wait i actually thought I would be on 60 Minutes one day, and instead I'm covering the Menendez brothers, and I don't want to be doing the trial of the century of the week. And so, yeah, it was pretty cool. Well, you know, you talk about Comedy Central giving you and Madeline a year to develop the show. One of the things about The Daily Show over the last 24 years is how many different versions of The Daily Show there are. Right? Yes. There's people who watch the original version can, can remember how it really did satirize local news Mm -hmm. and how there was a a period of time where people didn't know if it was a real reporter coming to talk to you or not. And then it went through a period during the later John Stewart years where it just was basically just, it dropped a lot of that and then was 
focusing more on skewering CNN and Fox and yeah. MSNBC. And now Trevor has taken it back in another direction where it's kind of satirizing local TV again. Yeah, well, it's interesting because yeah, it went from when we launched the show, we made a decision that there it was more in the vein of Colbert in the sense that there wasn't there wasn't that um, person who represented you as the viewer, you know. And so Craig, all the correspondents, the whole show from start to finish was a satire, uh, right? And was like had dopey news angles, and we and we actually found dopey news pieces and went out and, and covered them. Um, and I think, like, when it evolved into the John era, I, I liked, I loved, I li- I've liked all of the iterations, and I really love the way that. Whatever iteration happened, it really followed the trends of media, right? Mm. And so, and I really like that John became um, the voice of the audience, surrounded by a bunch of dipshits, you know? And that was really a fun way to go, right? It's like, what are you talking about? Well, John, we really, you know, it was like, and so that was really a nice way to go. The field pieces stayed the same, and then they come back, and John, and then John was also able to, like, do serious things as well. And, and, And so, uh, I thought that was I thought that was really great, and I think it really upped the um, the ante on the on the interviews as well. You know, when he would have guests on, you know, it was um, it was much more in depth and great, and you know, became a place for people to to go. And I think Trevor is you're right; he's back in um, doing a return to the silliness and the buffoonery, and it also plays nicely. I also love it. Yeah, and I also think Trevor's interesting because I think Trevor is the most available host um, as far as, um, you know, his his one-person shows and his personal history are really interesting. And right. so we really know a lot about him. And, and, you know, he's had a really interesting, sometimes painful, uh, but really rich life. And also to have an international perspective uh, behind the desk and a man of color behind the desk um, is really cool. And like I, I love all these evolutions. Let now maybe the next evolution can be a woman or a woman of color. It would be awesome. Well, it's spun off into all these different directions. Yeah. John Oliver on HBO, Sam B yep. on TBS. Yeah, and I think Colbert on CBS. Yeah, and I think that it's. Um, I love actually that um, all three of those people who I love to death have gone to networks where they didn't have comedy in the title, which gives them license to. Be able to be funny, but also to be able to take a longer time telling stories, um, be a little bit more uh, activist, if you will, right. in in how they tell stories, pick topics that are hard, um, be funny and be serious and take you on an arc through all of it. Um, and I think that that is, it's spun off a new trend even in late night. You know, when I was starting out in comedy and then transitioning into like trying to find TV writing and stuff. Nobody wanted you to write political jokes. Everybody was like, no, don't do political jokes. You know, like can, what? Can, maybe we'll do one here and there, but it will be super stupid. Um, but I think that folks found their platform. And I think in the era of Trump, all of that changed. You cannot find because it seems it seems hollow to have a monologue that doesn't talk about the fact that the world is on fire. Like, how do you do that? I don't think you could do it. How? how- how, I mean, you've you know you've been a comedian and an activist over several administrations now, yeah. both Democrat and Republican and Trumpian. Um, 
how would you compare what it's like to do what you do now versus say during the Obama years or during the George W. Bush years? Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, it's not. I mean, not... there's some of us who felt like the world was on fire then. then. Me, I was one of those people. You know, it was actually, it was, I feel like it was more thoughtful. It was a more thoughtful time where mm. you could talk more about policy. Like you could pick, like I do this every year. I do this massive year in review show that I do in the Twin Cities. Um, hopefully going to do it um in one of the streaming services for next year. But it was, there would be 25 great stories that you could cover um, and you could kind of break them down. You could point out the hypocrisy of how they went down. And now with Trump, it is, it's a relentless assault. And so you don't, there's not specific things that you talk about. It's like you have to create larger constructs with which you, Almost, almost like the thing you would write the joke about, the the cr- ridiculous tweet. Those are just setups to a larger punchline about gaslighting or about like where our country has gone or about the unleashing of, uh, or, or I don't even know if it's unleashing. It's more just like, um, like face off. Like people just pulled off their mask and they just had their same face, but it was like, yep, I get to be a racist now, you know. And so <laughs> it's just a different way of looking at the world. Um, yeah, hoods off. <laughs> exactly. You're thinking of hoods. I'm thinking of hoods. I am so sorry. Um, so it was, it's been a challenge and also it has been, um, there's a lot of people doing jokes now and a lot of them aren't that great. You know, there's a lot of people who are just kind of doing surface material about, um, Trump being a moron or he's orange or whatever. And it's like, uh, like going deeper, I think is more fun. And it's also unleashed comedy um, riffs within comedy. You know, there's been people who are like the social justice warrior activists are wrecking comedy and trying to shut me down and coming after me and cancel culture, cancel culture. And I just kind of feel like, I mean, part of what attracted me to comedy was, It was a place where I got to say what I wanted, understanding the ramifications of what that is. And so when I hear successful comedians um, yelling about the fact that they're being silenced on their seventh Netflix special, um, I find it laughable. Also, I'm the abortion comedian. (laughs) And so you don't hear me like that would be me literally saying, you know what? I go out on the road and I raise money for clinics that provide abortion and like I can't believe people are mad at me and trying to like cancel me for doing that like of course they are you know when you say things I've never understood that you don't understand that when it passes your lips then people get to have a say you don't get a do-over you don't get a oh you know you knew I was kidding like you don't get to explain anything it your words are owned by all the ears the second it comes out of your mouth. So you have two choices. Double down and defend it and then and then develop an audience that wants to hear your what you have to say. Right. Um, or if you didn't mean to say something and you're like, oh, shit, that came out wrong. I'm sorry. Like, I honestly feel bad. Like, forgive me. I'll do better. That's if that's true. Um, or just like oh, or just like own it. But like, just own it. Like, I just feel like you got to own it. And let and if people are going to be mad at you, but you want to be that person, then develop an act for those people. 
and figure out a way to have your thing. Um, I'm not particularly interested in whiners, <laughs> you know. Uh, as a as an activist comedian, though, how how much of the job would you say is morale boosting for an audience that feels the way you feel versus actively trying to change hearts and minds? I think, you know, since I'm I'm focused on reproductive rights and gender stuff, mm-hmm. um, it's it's a lot of both. Um, for me, it's we travel to places where a lot of folks don't go, you know, which is it's cool to be in. Birmingham, Alabama, uh, or, you know, Wichita, Kansas, Little Rock, Arkansas, and have a Parna Nancharla and Jeannie Asheray and Joel Johnson and, you know, um, headliners who would normally not go to those towns, come to their towns. It's like, wow, this is so cool. And so part of it is gathering a lot of people in a space and then having them meet the local activists in their town so that they have a a place to go and connect and sign up right there so that um, we're helping grow activist spaces. So on a local level, we're just having a great time and doing our shows and then um, helping those activists connect with our audience who cares about the issue, but maybe mm-hmm. didn't know where to go. Cause I think a lot of times people don't know where to turn and they feel bombarded with information and they feel like, I don't know what to do. They went to the women's March and they're like, what do I do now? who should I sign up with that's going to actually put me to work? Because I think people have developed uh, an energy where they they want to be part of the change, not just give money, but like, how can I be part of the change? How can I physically put myself on the line, not just sign a petition, but like go and escort or go talk to my um, state legislator. And we're able to provide that when we go to these shows. So that part of it is, is definitely, um, it's almost re- invigorating folks and giving them a reset as to why they need to jump in and participate Mm -hmm. um, or helping somebody who's directionless get some direction. Changing hearts and minds is another thing. Um, If people think you're a baby killer, it's pretty hard to convince them otherwise. Um, And I also feel like I want to expose the people who are violent within the anti-abortion movement, which is a lot of people because they're no longer fringe. They're getting elected. They're influencing policy and, and they're friends with, with people who are like holding state, local and federal offices. And so that's a big part of our like awareness raising. And that's been, um, that's been really cool and super helpful. So I think that is a big thing. Um, People always say, are you speaking to the choir? And I say, you know what? Uh, The choir that is, quote unquote, the progressive movement isn't singing a lot of songs about abortion. They're actually telling us to be quiet and saying that we're in the way and we're going to we're wrecking the movement and we're wedge issue people. And Mm -hmm. it's like, how come every pro-choice person who ran on those on that issue won in the last two elections we've had? So I don't think we are at all. And so that's been really frustrating to have your own people not understand the importance of reproductive rights and how it matters and how it's literally a human rights issue. Well, certainly on the state level, people saw in 2019, several states enacted new tougher laws against abortion. And those of all are in different parts in the court process as we speak now. Yeah. But it seems like listening to you just now, how fundamental it is if you are a politically minded comedian 
not just to be talking about or joking about these things on stage, but also tying it into uh, actions that you can take. Yeah, and I think that's why... Which is what you're doing with Abortion AF. Yes, Abortion AF and, and the Feminist Buzzkills Tour, of- right? And that's what's so cool is that a lot of folks... We've had, we've had to do a lot of like education, and so anytime I can say... Like when comics are like, I'd love to come out with you, but do I have to do like political material? Do I have to do? I was like, no, all you have to be is yourself. Um, I, I host the shows, you know, I'm the, I'm the guidepost. So I give people like the funny update on the, on the world. And then I have the conversation and it gives comics who are super busy and who care a space to hang their hat. And then a lot of times, you know, they come and do the show. They see that how much of a difference it makes when you see 500 people in, you know, Wichita, Kansas, come out to a show and then you see that local community activated simply because you decided to come and do your jokes there. Uh, and then you go visit the clinic and we do a lot of work with the clinic. So in every town we go to, we, um, a lot of folks don't know that if you provide abortion care in some of these hostile environments, like you can't get somebody to like, I don't know, mow your lawn or fix your fence or fix your roof. Or if you need your clinic uh, rooms repainted, like you can't get a painting service to come. So we go do that. And then we tell the audience that these clinics need constant care. You know, we, we did it. We fixed it up. It looks cool. But who in the audience now is going to commit to being the people who will maintain it? And I'll never forget. I was in Oklahoma City and this dude dude's in the audience and he raises his hand. And he's waiting for a long time. And I go, do you have a question? And he goes, yeah. He goes, I just want to get this right. Are you telling me that activism can mean I have a landscaping business and I get paid by this clinic and they're my client and I go mow their lawn and that's activism? And I said, yeah. I said, by you parking your van Mm -hmm. in front of that clinic and and cutting their hedges and doing their lawn, you're making a statement that you support them. And that is like the greatest gift that you can give. And if that's what you can give as an activist, like – Right on, brother. And he's like, sign me up. And he went and signed up and like he's their person that does their lawn care now. <laughs> but so that's pretty cool. And somebody's like, I have a brother who can like fix the fence or, or I can do that or I have a company that does that. And so we've been able to bring community, um, people who are in the community together with, with clinics all the time so that they can have supporters who say, I'm proud you're my community and I will, right. and I will do that. But it also seems like this – your examples you're setting right now kind of um, underpins the necessity of just how important it is to show up. Showing up. Showing up and focusing allows people to mobilize yeah. in a way that talking to me into these two microphones or talking to all of America on Air America doesn't have the same effect. That's right. And, you know, and also, you know, I'm somebody who did comedy and did these shows and – I have tons of friends who are in various levels of of the entertainment business mm-hmm. who aren't going to do what I do, nor do does anybody need them to. But the fact that I figured out a passion that I can have is to create an infrastructure that people who are doing movies and stuff can can pop in. And if I promise to do if I promise to ask them a favor and I just adhere to that promise and I don't ask for 50 things they really want to do it and they're thankful it's like thank you for creating the space 
that I can come in, make a difference by, by my notoriety and my talent. Um, and I can spend time and really learn about the issue from you so that when I do talk about it on Facebook and Twitter, um, I'll direct people to the right places to raise money or to the right organizations who are doing the work and that I can come out and help mobilize. Um, and then I can go back to my job and it's like, yeah, it's great. And I'm still doing stand up, and I'm still making videos and I'm still doing everything I love, but I found a way to create this hybrid, um, to do all of it. And then to, to ask my, my pals to join in. I mean, Sarah Silverman, there is no better supporter of what we do. She always says yes. She is somebody who is like a fearless activist and funny and um, is just great. Like I couldn't, I couldn't be more thankful. And when I look at the list of people who show up, Rachel Bloom and, and Ida Rodriguez and just like Andy Richter and just like tons of really cool people who just always say yes because I don't ask that often. So that's the key. Don't bombard. Mm-hmm. Ask, ask for something simple and don't make people work too hard. So I know, you know, you're still in the thick of it. We're in an election year, 2020. At the very beginning of what has already proved to be a long year. I mean, January felt like <laughs> I feel like I have a hangover from January. Yeah, January felt like a lot of months packed. Into wow. It was so many months. But when we talk or when we listen to this in the future point and we talk about legacies, you know, you already, you have these things like the daily show or plucking Rachel Maddow out and giving her a national audience. And then all of this with the lady Parson abortion AF, what do you, what do you hope your legacy is? I guess I just hope my legacy is that I didn't like just take up space. You know, I hope that I, I hope that I made the world better through, um, through the work that I did. And, you know, that's, that's kind of all you can really hope for. I hope that I make people laugh when I'm telling jokes, but I also just hope that, um, when I thought, and, and again, I don't feel like everybody needs to be an activist comedian. I really don't. Um, but I just feel like I hope that I helped, um, elevate voices who were talented that might have not gotten a shot. I hope that I helped clinics. I hope that I, you know, I just hope that I didn't just like take up air. <laughs> That's what I hope. I just hope Prince would be proud. I hope Prince would be proud. Although I'm not sure Prince was pro-choice. He might not have been. <laughs> I know the person I like admire most in any creative landscape might actually have hated exactly what I'm doing, but maybe not. I don't know. We'll never know. And that's... He looks better in chaps than me. <laughs> Assless chaps. I look better in chaps. <laughs> Thank you so much, Liz. Thanks, I really appreciate it. <laughs> this episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.